You are listening to the Enormo Cast. So what's your tired excuse for not wearing a helmet? Too heavy? Not anymore. Too hot? You literally wear a beanie in your sweltering climbing gym, bro. Too dumb looking? Well, you might have me there. But you know what else is dumb looking? A cracked skull. Yes, 25 years ago, all those excuses might have had legs. But Black Diamond's modern helmets shut them all down. The new redesigned half dome is durable, lightweight, lower profile, and sports an improved chin strap and better headlamp clips. It's just a great modern climbing helmet. And it comes at a price point one-tenth of 1% of your average ER visit. But listen, we here at the Enormacast really just want you to consider getting your freaking brain wrapped in a helmet. And while we'd love for you to support Black Diamond, end up in a half dome, or the racier Vector or Vapor, frankly, there's a lot of great lightweight helmets out there, and it's time to reconsider your prejudices for the old brain bucket. So support the Enormacast by checking out Black Diamond's redesigned Half Dome and all their helmets at blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local shop. But if you don't find what you like there, look around and get your brain behind some foam and plastic before it's too late. I've been obsessing with the name Otaki since Sportiva released the slick blue shoe a couple years ago. Rhymes with Suvlaki. In Japanese, it apparently means cascade. And there's an old Maori town in New Zealand called Otaki. What exactly are you up to, Sportiva? So in the spirit of etymological adventure, I started climbing in them despite my unsavory fetish for the crest of a slightly worn pair of miras. Mm. And I gotta say, for sport climbing and really techie trad, I'm sold. I'm also sold on the name of the only color choice, Blue Flame. Cha-cha! But mostly, I smile at the comfort-to-performance ratio. Like any tightly fit shoe, a pair of otakes are not exactly a lavender bubble bath. But of course, with Sportiva's dedication to the craft, the otakis slide on without any annoying stitch bumps and hot spots and remain tight where it matters. So if you want performance, perfect fit, and a shoe that rhymes with savory skewered meats... Check out the Otaki at Sportiva.com or your favorite local shop. Kali Aretzi. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place. That's out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it that out. I'll see. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment. With support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Galoose. It is 
about eight o'clock here on August 16th, 2019, and this is episode 181 of the Enormacast, a conversation with Malcolm Daly. So do you know who Malcolm Daly is? I feel like he's super well-known, but then I started thinking about it in that perhaps it's more that he's well-known to people like me that are, quote-unquote, in the industry, although I feel like I'm on the very peripheral edge of the industry where the oxygen is thin, barely breathing out here on the fuzzy edges of the industry. But Malcolm Daly is well-known in the industry because of heading up Trango, being a part of Talk earlier in his career, Low Alpine, and more recently Paradox Sports, which I think is something people have really heard of. But uh, maybe not that well-known as a climber, even though through this whole thing, through 40-some years of being out there in the industry, he's also been a really prolific climber, a boulderer, early boulderer. Back when bouldering was this little fringe thing that didn't hardly even exist, he was an early boulderer up in Horsetooth Reservoir, which was a bit of a laboratory for early bouldering, pre-pad kind of bouldering when you just fell onto the ground or your little piece of carpet. He also has climbed with a ton of really visionary climbers, and so kind of not unlike me in that way. Uh, just been around climbing a really long time. And that's given him a long view on the culture, on the industry, on what climbing brings to the table for people as, in terms of his work with Paradox Sports. So just a really enjoyable long view conversation. Now, if you're out there and you're not in the industry and you've heard of Malcolm Daly, it might be because of an infamous and unfortunate accident that he had 20 years ago where he fell a couple hundred feet in Alaska, shattering his legs, hitting Jim Donini on the way down and ending up being rescued after a couple days off of a ledge in Alaska and eventually losing his leg. And now he's become, like Craig DiMartino, a pretty visible advocate for continuing to climb with uh, a prosthetic and and actually has gone on to help develop uh, some useful climbing prosthetics that he uses, that Craig DiMartino uses and that he's uh, made available relatively inexpensively for for anybody that needs them. So that's maybe his most high profile thing in the greater community, unfortunately. But what we have here today is a deep dive into Malcolm's life, his life in the industry, that accident, his work with Paradox Sports, which has been a really amazing lasting legacy. What we also have today is just a great perspective. And it was a real pleasure to talk to Malcolm. I, I kind of had met him and had known him very, you know, kind of as an acquaintance for a really long time. And it was really nice to sit down because he's got an amazing attitude. He didn't let the accident, he didn't let any setbacks in the industry sort of keep him down. He just kept pushing forward. He mentions twice in the interview that he's a glass half full guy. And I think he's more of a glass like brimming over foam pouring out sort of guy, uh, which was nice to talk to. And uh, I felt better after I talked to him. Uh, he, he brightened my day. And I think you guys will get a lot out of this one and, and uh, feel the same way after hearing Malcolm talk. So we're going to get right to it. Sort of a long one. Don't have much business. Middle of the summer. I'm up here in Sconston, Wisconsin on a family trip. My parents are trying to take care of the normal baby right now, which is no mean feat at the moment. So let's get right to it. The conversation with Malcolm Daly. It's a long way to 
want you to amend your check your knots okay. at the end. Okay, but, so, <laughs> I, so, I don't that, know. We can we can flow no, no, into no, that. No, let's anyways. let's. Oh, I was actually planning right. on opening with. That. Oh, great! <laughs> um, you got a shout out in the in a recent intro because of the conversation we had on email about the knots. So uh, the famous sort of catchphrase ending with this is check your knot. And you have a you have sort of an amendment you'd like to add to that. And, I, and, and this is a great place to open, actually. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I've been geeking out over climbing gear and, and uh, uh, you know, climbing safety and stuff forever. And I look at data and, you know, check your knot is this ritual that we've gone through for 50 years. And uh, some of the the gyms in particular, where when they teach people how to climb and stuff, there's actually a physical rig, rig, uh, ritual where you pull your shirt up so somebody can see you're not. And and I love that. But the bottom line is, is people aren't getting hurt because they're f- tying bad knots or forgetting. I mean, it, it happens, but very, sure. very rarely. Um, but people get lowered off the ends of the ropes all the time. Probably once a week, somebody gets dropped somewhere. So let's start checking that knot. Right. Right. Let's let's when when you check your knot, check your knot, check your partner's knot and check the rope knot. You know, come on, let's let's th- this one's a no brainer. Right. Start checking it and checking it when you check your other knots. If you wait until the person's about ready to lower, it's too late. Yeah. Let's. Well, let's just and, make- and the thing about that uh, accident is that the, the not putting the knot in it is is when the oversight happens because if anybody if anybody's even come close to having it happen it goes through your hand before i mean it's not like a really experienced person necessarily could have stopped that from happening if the knot's not there and you get to the end of the rope and you're look usually you're looking up at your climber and it's through your hand and out the gree out the atc out the anything like you're not gonna suddenly clamp down on it and save the day unless you happen to be looking down at that moment Right. And, and it just, it's such a silly thing to not do. Mm-hmm. No pun intended there. Um, but with so many people using rope bags and tarps, you tie it into the bottom anyway. Just, yeah. You know, just check that damn knot. Well, yeah. And the cool thing too is that, yes, you know, I think the, the like prescribed knot is a double or a fisherman's knot, you know, but truly if it's, if it's even just loosely on your rope bag, tab that you just it's going to pick your rope bag up and your rope bag is going to come towards you and you know it's it's going to work right one way or the other right yeah. right it's going to either stop you or yeah tell you you're right. getting close to yeah. so yeah and, and it's um i mean i think for better or worse the it's a it's very much a symptom of or not not entirely but part of it is a symptom of gym climbing that you know when you're in a gym and you're especially using the gym's ropes, like it's long enough. Their insurance company, every, it, and, and like the dumbing down of all these things. And there's, you know, the top rope is long enough. The knot is already in it. The Greek Greek's already attached to it. All these things to make it as safe as possible also makes you kind of as dumb as possible. And uh, yeah, the knot at the end. And then the other knot at the end is the rappel knot. Right. Yeah. I've rappelled off the ends of my ropes twice. Really? Once at night, 300 feet off the ground in Yosemite, oh. and once in the Clove alcove in El Dorado. Tell us more <laughs> about how you are sitting here in front of me after rappelling off the end of your rope 300 feet off the ground. At night. At night. 
So I was with a crew from Fort Collins and, um, you know, this was back in the, in the, you know, Swami belt days with cut off your old, uh, stand up shorts, maybe white, wet painter's pants. And we'd done a couple of the, you know, five, six or seven pitch routes, Hoppy's favorite and, uh, the mouth and that kind of thing. And, um, there were three of us and we were wrapping down. It was dark at the end of the second one. You know, nobody had headlamps at that time cause they all sucked. And, um, we had, you know, just the sequence, cause we'd done this probably 12 pitches already, you know, between two different routes. Um, one person would pull the ropes through and tie the neck, uh, tie the knot. And then the other person was off to the side. And then the third person was set up to belay. And this is back in the days of carabiner breaks, you know, six beaner breaks. And, uh, it was my turn to rappel off and we still had, uh, three more uh, pitches to go. Um, and so I get on the ropes and I rappel down and it's just going, zzz, you know, and those carabiner brakes are really smooth. They're really, really easy to, to rappel fast. And we would rappel down to the, <laughs> we, we, we would, we would, uh, rappel down until we hit the knots because they were just a bolt station somewhere, right? The, hey, this was on the apron, right? There's nothing up there. And, um, you know, so we'd go down, hit the knots, and then we'd sort of swing around until we found them by Braille. And I'm just as I'm thinking that it's, you know, I should be hitting the knots pretty soon. All of a sudden, I'm off the end, right? Oh, 300. God. I still had two more rappels go. Oh, God. This and is I, the, the – I get this <laughs> feeling whenever I hear these stories. And we're laughing about it because you lived. But anyway, keep going. Yeah. Well, I, oh. I fell about four feet into a Manzanita manzanita bush and, uh -huh. you know there's not too many of those and of course i got all stickered up and bloody and stuff like that but boy i love that manzanita bush right then and all i remember is hanging in there and my you know my heart's like exploding and um i remember hearing the carabiners rattling down right for 300 feet they go tink 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 down at the ground yeah because what what i mean you know malcolm we're gonna have to like do a little time warp about what a beaner break looks like. But anyway, look it up in your books because when the rope comes out, the beaners come off. Right. Yeah. So that's what we're talking about <laughs> right. is those things just shot into the air. Right. Right. And then started probably two of them at into least. the dark. Yeah. Right. Into the dark. So, and then you've, you did it another time. Yeah. And this one is a little bit different. My friend Randy and I were trying to do that route called sequential in the Kloof alcove and uh, El Dorado. And um, we couldn't, we couldn't lead it. We weren't good enough. And so we went around at the top and we were, um, to set up a rappel to wrap down and kind of uh, uh, inspect it. And this was before people were pre-placing gear and stuff like that. And um, so for some reason, I was close to the edge and um, pulling the rope, trying to get the ends um, even. Ropes didn't all have middle markers at that time. And uh, for some reason, we changed the sequence of who was doing what. And anyway when we it's all over the edge and um i clipped in to wrap down uh, well, well i looked down and i saw a pile of rope on the ground i said oh good they're down and uh and i rappel down and i'm going really slow inspecting and it's pretty steep there and um uh you know just as i got so that i was no longer in contact with a rock anywhere one end went through my hand so i'm hanging you know literally i'm squeezing with all my might on uh, the two ropes, one hand below the belay rig and one above. And I'm just hanging there and I'm screaming at my buddy, of course, who wasn't 
his fault or my fault. It was both of ours fault. And I'm like, God, what you fucker, you know, and I'm screaming at him. And he had the presence of mind to grab the two ropes right at the anchor and just hold them together so they wouldn't slip. And I was able to, I mean, I was looking for ground zero about 40 feet off the ground. Wow. And uh, he was, he had the presence of mind to grab them all and just wrap down on a single one. Yeah. You could then, the friction would be enough to wrap right. the rest right. of the way on the right. single. Right. All right. So anyway. So, yeah. So learn from this man's mistakes. <laughs> yeah. And we're laughing about it because you survived and that's how those stories go. That's called um, macabre humor. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so, yeah. So that's how we're opening the show is the new, <laughs> the new check you're not. And you know, when you, you told me that it's fully legit, the, the lowering off the end of your rope spe- in particular because of so much sport climbing. And then also people approach like things in Indian Creek as a sport climbs. Those are notoriously just not quite long enough especially yeah. for a 70 yeah um even 80s yeah. don't make it yeah. on some of those bigger routes yeah. and so you gotta like shift your mentality away from the gym sport climbing thing and it's what most of us do the most of these days and so it's like i mean sometimes i get out and look at my atc like this foreign object now right you know <laughs> like what was this thing for oh that's right yeah so. you know Kids come into the shop. I, I work at Neptune now, and, and uh, I, I always say, okay, so what's the most important safety rule when you're climbing? They all go, don't fall. And I'm like, dude, you're going to fall, right? right. And they're like, oh, yeah. You know, they say, check your knot. And I go, that's a good one or whatever. But I said, you know, it's pay attention. Mm-hmm. Pay attention, you know, and we're all, we're in Boulder, so we're, we're very present, you know, we do all these yoga, breathing, <laughs> be in the moment kind of things. But the reality is it's about paying attention. And um, if you pay attention to what you're doing, um, I think we'll save uh, a lot of yeah. legs and ankles and, uh, ankles and backs and um, uh, lives. Well, the irony of that, too, and because that, that's been a message I've, I've had on here recently. And the irony of that is that one thing will always when you talk about someone who loves climbing, what are they going to They're like, oh, it makes me so present. It makes me like so in the moment is definitely a rote kind of response to what we love about climbing. And so it's like. Yeah, be in the moment, but be there. Don't be like spacing out into into the world or yeah, whatever and, it is that, that like that moment has yeah. to continue until you're back down on the ground right, and right. you're and you're safe. Yeah, right. Pe- people go, oh yeah, I like being in the moment because the climbing is so you know you have to be present to mm-hmm. be successful at mm-hmm. it. But um, when you get to the top and you go, woo, dude, you're still not safe. Right, right. right. <laughs> So anyway, um, cool. Well, um, great. And you've got a lot of experience just in climbing and, uh, and, and in the world of, of accidents, in fact, and we're going to get into all that stuff, but let's start with, uh, with where you sort of consider your roots, um, in terms of, of growing up and, and in terms of climbing. Yeah. So, um, I, I, I grew up as a mutt. My dad worked for the state department in the fifties and, uh, I was born in Hong Kong a year after he died. I found out that he was actually a bag man for the CIA and was carrying cash to the Chinese nationalists. This is when the whole Chiang Kai-shek thing was happening and the communists were taking over. And, you know, he went to Yale, went with skull and crossbones and all that stuff. And and, uh, I had no idea about this. A year after he died, I'm at a family reunion. Actually, we were spreading his ashes. And my cousin, who is my father's brother's father, who 
was the only one in the world he ever would have told that. Told me, yeah, didn't you know, know your dad was a bag man for the CIA? And I'm like, what the fuck? That's the coolest thing in the world. I wish I'd known about that wow. right beforehand. And, you know, I mean, all the diplomats in the State Department at that time, they were all doing, you know, sneaky ass stuff all over the world. Right. And, you know, that was my dad had this briefcase. I, you know, I imagine the little metal suitcase like this thing over here just stacked with thousand dollar bills. What, how, and, uh, how old were you when he passed? Uh, so that was like seven years ago. So okay. that would have been 55 or 56. And he, huh. my dad had a, had a, um, moral spine that was made of hardened titanium. He would never, ever break that oath. Right. And, and, uh, his, um, uh, his wife, um, you know, when she heard me say that she was, she goes, man, you can't tell that to anybody. Oh, <laughs> Nice job. Nice job keeping that secret, Yeah, well, buddy. you know, it's okay. It's all, it, they're, they're, they're both, uh, okay. you know, their, their ashes okay. have been spread. So. Okay, right <laughs> okay. Yeah, don't tell your secrets. But anyway, I, I just it's love my, my, my dad, the vision of my dad. Right on, right Sure. You know, because he used to love watching Get Smart and Mission Impossible. Oh, just picking up some tips. Kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> his shoe, you used it to all, play it with his shoe phone. Didn't he have a shoe phone? Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. Okay. No, I, I just, I just love that Back vision. To you. And and I apologize if I've dumped any national s- secrets or right. anything. <laughs> so anyway, uh, after that, so they did two year stints. Um, in the state department and we came back, I was born in Hong Kong. I was like four or five months old when, when we left, came back to um, the DC area for nine months and then went to Japan for two years and lived there. I don't, the only thing I remember really is um, my sister falling off a stone wall and, you know, it was, it was just like flashes, mm-hmm. but I learned to speak Japanese cause we had Japanese made. So I, I spoke Japanese when I was a little kid. Oh, and, cool. And then uh, came back for nine months and then went to Brazil for two months or for two years. And um, the, my, my strongest memory was um, uh, hitting sister Mary, whatever the hell. Um, I just learned how to tie my shoes. My dad had taught me and I sh- was showing her. And she goes, no, that's wrong. And she slapped me and I slapped her back. So I got ejected from the Catholic school and went to the Brazilian school right there in the street. So I got to run around with little Brazilian kids. Oh, cool. That was really cool. Yeah. So I was a polyglot by the time I was five years old. I spoke three languages. Oh, cool. So, of course, I've forgotten them all. Yeah. It lays the groundwork, though. (laughs) Right. I think for language acquisition. Yeah. Probably. So, all right, well, let's move on to, uh, to where the climbing began. So I like to say that I never forgot to climb. Mm-hmm. My my parents were definitely approved of the free range concept. And so when we were little kids in Brazil, I'd scramble around in the buildings that were still under construction. When we came back to the United States, I was climbing trees all the time. And I was a climber, right? right. And, and uh, I think it's in our DNA to climb. And when I think about, um, you know, when kids are just learning to walk, right? They're they're holding on to the edge of the table, and you'll remember this: that they don't want to walk and leave the table and go across the room. They want to throw a leg up and and climb the coffee table, right? right? And so I look at that as the start of my climbing. Is my 
parents not freaking out about that, me hanging around the trees. We had a little cliff behind our house in Connecticut. And um, I was, you know, I was a scrambler and a climber. And I sailed in the summer with my dad. So I knew ropes and knots and stuff. Mm -hmm. And in 1968 or nine, I went to the Tetons and actually took a climbing lesson. It was like, duh. You know, I was, I was climbing five, eight and I didn't even know it. Right. Right. So. Which was, yeah, heavy for the time. What, who yeah, did, that was like real climbing. Who'd you get the course from? Uh, Pete Lev. Right. Yeah. So that was pretty cool because yeah. he's now living at Danini's house. And, and, uh, so it, I kind of re, you know, he doesn't remember me. Of course, I was one of a mid, middle, right. uh, million little kids at the time. I was 12 or 13 when that happened. Yeah. So. I asked that question because it, it's, uh, whenever I hear that, People go out there in those eras. It's always funny because there's somebody, you know, some legend was their instructor, yeah, you know, yeah. through those that those yeah. couple decades out in the Tetons. Yeah. I mean, actually up till now, really. Still, right? Yeah, yeah. It's still part of the pathway right. to, you know, being a legend. I think. Yeah. So what so. What it, you know, you're, you're this natural climber, you're, you grew up. When did it transition into sort of like, wow. This formal climbing thing, you know, not just trees and stuff, is is sort of going to be my path. Yeah, so I came back from that. It was a traveling summer camp, so I was living in Connecticut and came back from that after a you know month long journey. Um, I I there was it was a it was a mob of kids and we broke into groups in the Tetons and first day you you know you'd go climbing, second day you go horseback riding, canoeing whatever. I got onto the first day of climbing and I liked it so much. I climbed every day. And when I came back, I wanted to climb again. And so my parents hooked me up with the Appalachian mountain club and, uh, that didn't go so well. You know, they, they were, they all they had the, the sister Mary, whatever of climbing. Yeah. You know, it was all a bunch of old crusty dudes with round glasses and chopping on pot pipes and shit. And, you know, they wanted me to go to ragged mountain and profute, prove my my uh, proficiency on 5.0 before they'd let me try a 5.1 and right. I had to do two or three of those before they you know I could do a five and meanwhile I was scrambling 5.7 and 5.8 you know and they're like get down off of there you know right. so I, I basically lost interest um, until I came to Colorado um, in 1973 okay and that was mostly bouldering right yeah, so we went up and and we were part of that crew. You know, it was Wilford and Mammon and the Han brothers and Dave Bone, um, and you know we were the horse. We called ourselves the Horse Tooth Hardcores. Right on. We had a little T-shirt and everything. We called ourselves Team Glyco. Remember Glyco Chalk? No, it was one of the gymnasts. You know, oh, it, was right. en- it was Glyco or Endo right, or the chalks. Yeah. You could get. And you had to go to the drugstore to get it. Right, because it's a laxative. Uh, no, like that, no, I think it's, it? I think it's, uh, antacid, oh, okay. but whatever. <laughs> don't eat it. Yeah. Way. Don't eat it. <laughs> but those are great days. You know, I spent probably 80% of my climbing hours bouldering. Uh-huh. So, and this was before bouldering was invented. Sure. Right. I mean, it's, as we know it now, there mm-hmm. was, um, we were following John yeah. Gill's little white arrows right, right. And, and trying to get those things wired in. Yeah, I mean, to put again, to like put the the context around it, Gil was probably the, you know, only really heavy practitioner of 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 bouldering as its own discipline versus like, oh, we're just practicing to this to get good to climb these bigger things, you know, at least in the United States. Now, the the Fontainebleau was there, but uh, and then his little when he climbed a route successfully 
he what, what was it? He painted a little white arrow yeah, on it. Yeah, he had a little white up. arrow, right? Yeah, and he invented the rating system. Yeah, this which is still what I think, we, and we all should use. <laughs> I love it. So, Go ahead and tell us the rating system. Yeah, so, that's also uh, been a little bit lost to history. Yeah, so but um, but you know, B he had a, it was called the B rating system, yeah. and it was B one, B two, and B three. So, and and it was it was um perfectly fluid. So B1 would start at a at a at a problem that was harder than anything you could do with a rope, right? So that that was the the baseline. So of course that started as a moving target, right? Right? Yeah. And uh, so and and it, yeah, it had to be something you had to work a little bit. You know, you you wouldn't just flash it unless you were really good or really lucky and uh, that kind of thing. And then B2 was a problem you had to work on. You know, it was, it was, you had to project it. Mm-hmm. We didn't have that word, but then, but, you know, I'd go back up to Horsetooth Reservoir and I'd, you know, try and do the tendonitis tra- traverse or, you know, whatever up there, pinch overhang, any of that stuff. That was all B- B2. And then um, if you got something like super stupid hard, um, it was B3 and it would be immediately downrated if you ever repeated it or anybody else did. So B3 was like this holy grail. Okay. Yeah. Is it a moving target or is it also a personal scale? I think, I mean, yeah. If somebody else's B2 is a B3 versus... Or was uh, it well, no, because B3 was, right. the, was the holy grail. Right. So um, if somebody else did it, it got... Yeah. So there was, a, there was a thing called... Um, God, I forgot what it is. Brashears did it um, down on the on the um, torture chamber and um, did it with a top rope and and nobody had ever done it. So it was like a B3. And um, I, when I worked and worked and I finally got it and it immediately was downgraded, uh-huh. and which was okay. That wasn't like a slap or anything. Right. right? Because it, it was a moving tag. Is it target. gone? Uh, the tor- no no that's that um that's oh, the, no, um, the uh, that's the tropics the that got tropics go- got, got thank buried. god that place was a dump <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> you know it was it was popular because you could like ride your bike right out there right, it was right. just no, no epic get out there but you know the problems were shitty the environment was shitty it was loud it was industrial uh-huh. you know just literally a hundred feet over the hill, over the dam, was this beautiful, pristine bouldering area. Right. You know, nobody wanted to go there. Right. Okay. <laughs> so it made it, it cleaned up the the sort of it cleaned up the, the elegance of the whole scene by dump by them building a dam over it or right. enforce, <laughs> right. reinforcing the dam. I right. think is what right. it went I down. Think they had to... I mean, I was there. Uh, the last year, there was that. some I mean, there was some hard stuff. There, while right? I went to school right. was when it disappeared. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah, so we're talking about Horse Tooth Reservoir bouldering outside of Fort Collins, which has always been a, a like a storied, again, early bouldering area where bouldering was just its own thing, you know, and and you know, sort of by by uh, logistics that you know when you're in Fort Collins, like roped climbing isn't. It's not like Boulder where it's just right it's out of town. You basically right, we, had to go to Boulder. We had to travel, so yeah. I I I I'm a glass half full person right mm-hmm. so we were the centrally located between vitavu estes park and boulder right right and there was no rock climbing in fort collins at the time because right. fort sport climbing didn't exist we had this canyon the pooter canyon was a choss pile right and we'd drive right through it on our way to go skiing or whatever every day there was one rock up there called gray rock and um you know, that was a three-mile hike in from the road, and, and we just drove by all this other rock that now has there's, – there's a three-quarter-inch thick guidebook now. Right. 
Lubin wrote it initially, and then it was the new versions have been updated with his him as a kind of a uh, author in memoriam or something. So we we uh, I was also part of the end of the era of no pads. Um, we had our uh, I think probably I didn't know it at the time, but probably inspired by Fontainebleau, we had our little piece of carpet. We, yeah, um, yeah, and and which was actually. To mostly to clean your shoes off. Right. But if you did fall, you tried to hit it because there was like a quarter inch of padding. Well, you know? Verm came up and he actually had a piece of carpet with about four inches of foam glued on it. Okay. And he'd, he'd um, stuff it under the rocks, kind of like they're stashing, stuffing, or stashing pads now. He would hide it under the eliminator or the mental block or something. And, mm-hmm. um, that was always there. But it was it was the size of a pillow. Right. right. It was not, it wasn't like what we have nowadays. Yeah. I mean, you had to aim for it. Oh, for totally, sure. Totally. Yeah. Cause I remember those days, but what, I mean, like he, he brought this, this sort of piece of, of technology. Um, but it, I've always wondered like, why, like, why had it not occurred to us to, to sort of make the step to pads? And I guess we were, I was right at the end of it. I mean, I think not too many years later, they were, were starting to become, something that you hauled up there. And, and there was always stories about like, oh yeah, so-and-so brought a mattress up here one time and everybody like, oh yeah, okay, well, I'm yeah, just going no, to hit the rock. It was, it, right, it was it, it was a little bit of a pride thing, right. you know, it's, it, and, um, you know, we just thought that if you needed padding, you were a pussy or something. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, Sorry, I know that wasn't PC, but um, it, it wasn't. Um, it's a relic of the age. It's a relic of the age, <laughs> yeah. And and we were tough, and we were uh, burly, and we were really good spotters, right? You know, and you know, think about doing the pinch overhang um, without pads. I mean, that's got jagged di- dragon oh, totally. teeth. You know, that's a death fall. And uh, boy, if you ever did it without without a spot, you had to just totally nail it. I understand that's yeah. like. All those problems are several feet taller now, too. Pro- yeah, I think from, so. From erosion yeah. and whatnot. So, yeah. well, cool. Well, what what about um? You know, you you named so, some names in there um that you know that are legendary within the the bouldering scene, but then some that are legendary within you know greater climbing in the Great Ranges. Wilford being yeah, one of them. Yeah. Um. So, you know, you were pursuing this, but there was still on your mind climbing larger things oh yeah you yeah. know we we were we, we started bouldering to um you know to practice for climbing to get stronger we didn't sure. have climbing gyms and nobody ever thought about training i mean that would have been really dumb and uh, um so we just go bouldering right. so we literally i'd be up there five or six days a week you know after classes or whatever and wilford was there and um you know almost everybody um was a rope climber they, they everybody was a rope right. climber and um uh and some of them fell off that wagon like steve mammon decided he didn't want to rope climb anymore so he just became a boulder you know and the han brothers were you know they kind of as, as soon as they realized that hey i don't need to carry all that crap around i can right. just go bouldering and i'll never forget when when wilford and verm t- took the first road trip i ever it's a what you're doing a week-long road trip to go bouldering are you fucking nuts i think it's it was like the stupidest thing i'd ever heard in my life that's you know? so funny the boulders <laughs> themselves were like 
why would we go somewhere in Boulder? Right, but right. They figured it and out. I think they were the first ones to do big, like Boulder at Big Bend, and certainly pretty early down at Waco because right. they went down there and, and we're, we're doing a bunch of that stuff. And so that would have been the late seventies and maybe early eighties. Uh-huh. So, well, what did the seventies and eighties look like for you with climbing and with your life? Um, well, I was a, I was a, for, yeah, there. I was, I was a, a forestry student. I graduated uh-huh. in seventy eight. And uh, I'd already been working at the mountain shop there. So I, I got my first job in the outdoor industry in 1974. Mm-hmm. I'd go in and work a day or two a week at the mountain shop. It was, and, uh, and my dad would send me $5 a week in allowance. And I spent carabiners cost two bucks. And so I'd buy two carabiners a week. And every third week. Have a dollar I, I left could, yeah, yeah, right. So, and <laughs> I saved it. And that's how I bought a climbing gear. <laughs> and um it, you know, it was it was great going through that. I had to decide whether I wanted to be a clean climber or or use pitons and stuff. Yeah, it was it was climbing was something for me. I wanted to do every aspect, right? I wanted to be an aid climber. I wanted to be a uh, an ice climber. I wanted to be a mountaineer, that kind of thing. Yeah, and all so, the technology was really in flux at uh, right, pr- yeah, right at that yeah, time. Yeah, it was totally in flux. Yeah, had, you know, when I I did my first climb, I'd never climbed multi-pitch before mm-hmm. and i led my friend went up to gray rack we did a first ascent um i literally i was that guy in the sheridan sheridan anderson cartoon reading the instruction book while i'm right. climbing to rock figure out how to do something. it yeah basic yeah. rock craft right and, and uh you know i had three nuts and maybe six carabiners and a couple of tied slings and a pair of limmer hiking boots Right, which are about the worst thing you could imagine for rock climbing, especially the slab. Right, and, yeah. and and actually, the the route that I that we did, I think, is now rated five nine R. Oh, good job! And uh, you know, because I didn't know any better. Right, I simply didn't know any right. better. Right, I kept on. I was climbing out of this corner. It was like the inside of a bathtub, and. You know, I'd climb up and I'd slide down into the juniper bush, which was covered with snow. My feet were wet and I'd climb up a little bit further. And finally, I popped out on top of this thing and I'm on a slab and, you know, 15 feet away, there's a crack. And sure enough, one of my two nuts fit and I'm like, cool, this works. Right. <laughs> <laughs> More bush talking. Yeah. Attracted to those bushes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so, well, cool. Um, and, you know, one of the things you mentioned to me when you when we started talking about doing this here because we're in Denver at the the outdoor retailer show is that you this is what what did you say your eighty fourth I th- yeah that, or, that's or an so. approximate right. number but I, you know I went back and so I've been um, in the climbing industry since nineteen seventy four right. starting in, in retail but mm-hmm. you know I went through the whole thing with being an instructor and then a guide I guided for CMS for five years did okay. you know that no I didn't yeah. know that <laughs> that was back it was right after Donahue. Um, uh, bought it from Michael Covington, okay. and uh, there was a little bit of a crisis there because Covington's goal was to hire the best climbers and guides, and he didn't care whether they were good guides. Right. So these guys would have contests to, um, so you could get back earliest in the afternoon, bring their clients back. Oh, I think it's going to storm. You right. know, we better run. Right. And uh, so they could go climb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so when when Mike Donahue, Topher's dad, right, Topher bought Donahue's it, dad. right. Um, I didn't know Mike at the time, but Harry Kent had just been guiding there. And he said, you should hire Malcolm. He's a good climber. And Michael, he looked at me and he goes, uh, can you lead? I said, yeah. He says, do you have a first aid card? I said, yeah. And he goes, you're hired. That, that's what guiding was. No, it was, it was still that way when <laughs> yeah, I got yeah, it was, there, it was, sure. it was pretty cool. And, um, you know, the stuff that I, that I did was just 
insane by today's standards. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, I guided four people on Wolf's Head Ridge in the winds with a 300 foot nine millimeter rope. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah you know, totally and, and that's a thousand feet of tra- traversing. Right. You know, and, and uh, we just did crazy. We didn't know. You right. Know? And, didn't. John Backer actually guide for Michael yeah, Covenant. Yeah, he had or, uh, ba- Backer Covington. was there. Billy Westbay was right. there. Um, Doug Snively, John Long, and Lynn Hill guided one right, season up right. there. So yeah, there were some pretty famous people. Which I mean, I, that the Backer one because I worked there and this yeah. was all lore, right? You know, and I was just like to this day, and even more so now because I know like what kind of guy he was, and he's <laughs> you know for better or worse, I can't imagine John Backer giving a rat's ass about your his client's climbing experience like i don't know it just he seems like yeah i don't know if he was a great guide or not <laughs> i i got to i got to know backer way past that actually it right. was it was in that era cuz mm-hmm. he and um john long came down to fort collins to go bouldering and i got to blow him off on some problems i had heinously wired so right. that was like one of my proud mom moments you know if you spend you know Six years doing the same problem over and over again, and you, you know, could burn off John burn Long, off John some Long. of the boys. Yeah, 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 that was awesome. Yeah, that's totally cool. <laughs> right. um, yeah, that. I mean, I didn't. I had no idea you were at CMS in the early yeah, days. Yeah. What, what years would that have been in the eight, well, early eighties or something? Yeah, I think maybe eighty one right. to. I think I quit when my son Mason was born. So I think my last real year guiding was 87 probably 87 uh-huh. and then i did a few other stints you know right. after that that were i used them because i could get in their insurance and right stuff. On. i took a crew down to tierra de fuego and did some other stuff so you were a guide and you managed to uh to find some woman that would spend time with you and uh, enough to have a child with her yeah that's uh, amazing uh, imagine that <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think one of, I, I mean, I, I've been married, uh, I'm going to be, it's uh, October will be 36 years. And, and uh, we've been pretty happily married. And I think a lot of us, because I wasn't just a climber, you know, I right. love to do all kinds of stuff. I, I actually like backpacking and, um, you know, Nordic skiing, backcountry skiing was what I really love to do. And I, I've raked, raced bicycles for a while. And I just never, you know, I, I never did anything specifically to train for climbing or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I just climbed as Arno said, I just listened to his part, but uh, podcast, I'm an intuitive climber, right? Not a analytical. Is that the other? Yeah. I think yeah. that's it. Yeah. I just yeah. climbed because it felt good. Right. You know, and I, I got okay at it and you know, I didn't, I didn't suck too bad. Right. <laughs> well, and, and too, you're, you're sort of in this position of, um, I mean, kind of, kind of like my position in, in when I started this podcast, of like, you know, being around, being in these places and knowing all these different people, um, it, you know, and for, for such a long breath of, of time, I think with being in the industry um, and, and all these different things, it's like you have this really vast perspective on climbing that's a little bit different than, than some other folks. Yeah, I and I that's one of the reasons I think I will be a climber forever, mm-hmm. right? And I even though I don't climb very much, my new rule of thumb is short approaches to easy climbs. Right. Um I I am a climber and and I will always be to my last breath a climber and um doesn't mean I climb a lot anymore, right. but I, I just it's it's my culture, it's my world. Um it's 
you know, it's, it's, it's a great place to be. I love this community. What did your trajectory then in the industry look like a little bit? So I was working at the mountain shop in Fort Collins, just, you know, banging out gear, um, at, at the little shop. And, um, I ran into a, uh, one of our reps who was a ski rep and he asked me if I would help him at a trade show. And I said, sure. And so I went down and, you know, these, the rep world is you're an independent rep and you have different brands. So if you go down to the trade show and, and you're repping, which this guy was a Fisher rep, um, he stayed there and he sent me over to the Swix booth because I, he also repped Swix. And so I got to do that. And that's how I broke into the, um, repping world. And after the, the second round of that, um, I ran into Jeff Lowe because he just, he had his first booth for Latok Mountain Gear, right? He tr- wanted to split off from Low Alpine, his brother's company, and just do the technical end of stuff. And so I went up to the booth and Jeff and his wife, Janie, were there. And I said, hey, who's your rep? And they go, we don't have one. I said, I'll, I want to be your rep. And he said, okay. Again, just like guiding, it used to be easier. Right. <laughs> right? And, and so I became the Latok rep. Right. And so I travel around the Rockies selling, um, you know, the clothing and the gear that they had. And we had tricams and hummingbirds and foot fangs and stuff. And they also busted out a clothing line, um, which was the first kind of real technical Gore-Tex-y kind of technical um, stuff, you know, elbow patches and Cordura shoulder right. thing, that kind of stuff. Pretty burly stuff. Um, and then Latok went out of business and Jeff convinced his brother, Greg and brothers, Greg and Mike to hire me in as their advertising and marketing coordinator. And cause I had bought a little Mac plus computer. It was, this was 85, right. maybe four. And I did a little newsletter, right. That yeah. I sent out. And, um, so he goes, Oh, this guy does these cool little newsletters. He should be the marketing director for this multi-million <laughs> dollar company. <laughs> And, and so I, I did that and produces catalogs and ads and all that kind of stuff. And um, uh, after a couple of years, they hired somebody who knew what they were doing in that world. And I became the product manager. Sure. So I was I was in charge of all the backpacks and all the climbing gear for Low Alpine for cool. a few years. It was really cool. Yeah. And, and uh, it was during the transition when they, they moved their production from uh, Lafayette and Broomfield over to, to Korea. Uh-huh. And uh uh, then Lowe was sold to a European company, and uh, they didn't want anything to do with the climbing equipment. So we started to negotiate it. In, uh, and in the end of 1991, I um, uh, made an offer, which they accepted, to buy that part of their business. Right. Um, that fell through after four months. They were they were in a turmoil. They had new owners in a kind of a interim uh, CEO in, in Colorado who really was not, well, he was a jerk. Um, but whatever it fell through because they hadn't held up their end of the bargain. And, right. and I had, I'd gotten some investor to had, had a warehouse space in North Boulder right there off of Violet and Broadway. And, uh, I didn't have anything to sell. So I got an airplane and went to Europe and went shopping for brands. And I became the distributor for Stubai and Rivery Joani ropes. That's how I started. Well, you, I had a question for you, but you answered it because oh. um, when we at CMS, um, you guys. That's Colorado Mountain School. Colorado right? Mountain yeah. School up in Estes Park. Oh, no, it would have been later than that. 
at some point we got outfitted with low alpine gear uh-huh like head to toe right as guides oh right i remember that was after my stint. yeah that right. was a little now that i right. think about it, it was probably like in 95 yeah or so yeah. but uh but quite honestly legitimately i still have some of that stuff and i still use it <laughs> do you still have the latok label because for a while they called it latok no it was right. uh, low, low alpine, alpine for right. sure and uh, that stuff didn't suck no i right. I, ha- I have bibs right like the yeah the like kind of up to your belly ones yeah. with the, with the yeah. farmer yeah. uh suspenders on them yeah i still ski in yeah yeah, yeah nothing, and, there's nothing wrong with that. We're stuff. talking 1995, R- right? right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people make fun of me. Right, don't get me wrong, right. but I still right. ski in those right. pants. So, right. yeah. So anyway, that might also be a, a, a plea for someone, some other industry person, to send me a new pair of pants to ski in. You know, no, yeah. Hello, <laughs> we could probably hook you up here this afternoon. Yeah, I might be able to find a pair on the floor somewhere. But um, they'll be mediums. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a big part of your career in the outdoor industry was Trango. And uh, yeah, talk a little bit about Trango and and kind of the mission that you guys had when when that was up and running. Yeah, so um, I ended up starting Trango after an attempt to buy the climbing equipment portion of Low Alpine Systems. Okay, and when that fell out, fe- fell through, um, I was sitting there with some investors in a warehouse, and um, I just went shopping in Europe and and found some gear to sell and then started developing some of my own stuff and working with that. And the ver- very first product we, we sold, actually, was a pyramid, right? It was something that I'd been working on with Greg, came out of the tuber that Jeff had designed for Latok. And um, uh, that was our biggest product for the first 10 years we were there. But over the years, I distributed stuff. Charlotte Moser, we, we took that from a $20,000 line in the United States to 700000 in 18 months. Um, and I'm pretty proud of that. And then uh, when the Charlet thing ended, we started designing a lot more of our other gear and we'd, we'd bring in outside people, you know, they would, they would come up with an idea and they'd say, Hey, I've got an idea for this new cam or I've got an idea for this new, um, you know, belay device or whatever. And I was always really proud to accept these ideas into the business right. and then um, figure out how to get them engineered and, and manufactured and bring them in and then pay royalties. And I didn't care whether things were patented or not. Patents are kind of stupid in the climbing world. Too easy to use them as a club. Right. You know, and, and um, so, yeah, we moved, the, we bumped the needle a little bit. We made a really cool belay device that competed with the Grigory called the Cinch. And mm-hmm. That's now the Virgo. It works really well, but nobody knows anything about it right. um, nowadays. Um, but probably, the, you know, the thing I'm most proud of is with the, with the history of the big bros. Yeah, because um, I was on to, you know, get into that with Craig Lubin and, and how yeah. that was passed on. Yeah, so Craig, you know, Craig um, was, I was his first boss. I was, he, I, he's always honored me with saying, you know, I gave him his first job in the mm-hmm. outdoor industry. And I was the director of the outdoor program at CSU for a while in the 70s. And I hired him as a climbing instructor. And um, he showed up when I was a rep. When I was a Latok rep, we had the low tricams and the giant tricams were the only thing that would correct protect big cracks yeah. back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Those was it number seven? Was that yeah, the biggest yeah, one? Yeah. yeah. Yellow. It, it, I think yeah, it had a yellow no, strap first, on the, it. Yeah. No, the first time, the first time I uh, climbed <laughs> super crack. easy to kick out as right, you go by. But you know what? They, they, you know, the first time I did super crack, I had a number two friend and right then on. a bunch of big tri-cams. Cool. And God damn it, it Perfect. worked. Yeah. 
right? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you have to be careful with it, right? <laughs> Sorry, no. <laughs> but offense. they were right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. and anyway, um, he, he'd been manufacturing, he came up with a big pro idea as part of his, uh, you know, senior project or something as a mechanical engineer. And, and he, he figured out how to get them made and was, you know, having a machined in Denver and then he'd have big bro parties at his place and he'd buy people, uh, pizza and beer and they would do it, assembly parties. Okay. And he finally got tired of that. He was really getting into writing his, uh, his anchors books and his, mm-hmm. you know, those things he'd been doing with John Long and he was, uh guiding trying to trying to get certified he was one of the original guys who was coming up with all the emga testing programs and stuff so he approached me he said i I, i'm tired of doing this i don't want to you know have pizza parties to assemble big bros anymore said would you would like to take it over i said hell yeah so we negotiated a royalty deal and um took over the the distribution and manufacturing for him and and paid him a, a royalty you know for the for the years um we did him he was getting six or eight grand a year in royalties, mm-hmm. which is, you know, pretty nice on a tiny little niche product like that. But anyway, he, he died in a guiding accident and um, we took that royalty um, stream and we aimed it, aimed it to a college fund for um, Craig's daughter, Julia. Um, you know, she graduates next year from high school and she'll probably have 70 or $80,000 right in a college fund. Yeah, she graduates from high school. Can you believe that? Yeah, man, that's wild. Yeah. And-, and um, you know, of all the, it's the only thing we ever did at Trango that mattered, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, climbing is totally optional. It's, it's kind of a, it, it's one of the joys of it that it is done, doesn't matter. We're not trying to save the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yet, all of a sudden being able to, you know, help a kid with a college fund, that matters. Right. And, and if I'm proud of anything in my career, um, you know, my Trango part of it, it's the, it was being able to help out Julia right. and Sylvia, you know, that was, that was a, that was a good deal. Well, you, you know, you, you, you provided employment for a bunch of climbers too. Yeah. So that, <laughs> you know, there's that. Right. Too. Right. No, we, we did that. I and, mean, do you know what I mean? It's like that, that's a, that's a really working for someone as a climber who understands climbing and is, is a great thing too. Yeah. So. Yeah, and you know, I'm proud that we we used to when come people would come to Trango with design ideas, mm-hmm. you know, and they hey, I want to, I've got this idea for a new belay device or a new cam or something. Um, we would look at it, and and uh, we ended. Up, I think we had eleven prod, different products that we licensed somebody's idea from. Oh, okay, and um, you know, th- I thought that was a pretty cool thing to be able to do for climbers. Right. You know, I you know I. You know, I, di- I didn't make much money at Trango right? when right. I sold my ownership, and I, right. I got a check that made one and a half house payments. Right, right. So you don't go into climbing gear business because you want to make big bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know, we we moved the needle a little bit on design, and um, I was able to have some some I think uh, profound effect on a few people. And I got really involved with the Access Fund. I was one of the founding board members in 1991, so that sort of followed, tracked the history of Trango. So I was on the on the on the board for 13 years, and you know we moved the needle there too. You, you did a, a recent podcast uh, with Ashley at the Sharp End about an accident that must have at least changed your your relationship with climbing pretty significantly so let's talk a little bit about that you, you know it's a significant part of your life because it also changed some of your career 
uh, trajectories it, of at least the it, last couple it, decades. It yeah, totally changed, changed my life. Everything. So that was twenty years ago. Right? Okay, May twenty first. Okay, nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, Danini and I went up to Alaska. I'd never climbed up there before. Mm-hmm. I'd done a lot of alpine climbing, but nothing in Alaska. So we went up and uh, we we had spotted a new line in um, uh, Waterman's book, High Alaska. Uh, on the south buttress of Mount Hunter. So the south ridge, ridge had been done. The southeast buttress had been done. Uh, and, but there was this beautiful line. And, you know, we saw it from pictures. And when we flew into the base, uh, we couldn't fly right there. We had to be over on a west fork of the Tokusitna just because of landing. And we walked up to it and we went, oh, man, this looks stupid. And it was just sort of a low angle, ledgy buttress up to the Happy Cowboy Traverse, which is that horrible double corniced um, thing that you just kind of have to hump your way along. And there's no pro and the classic place where if one person falls, the only way to protect is to jump over the other edge. Right. And, um, you know, that, that wasn't really climbing that was at that point. And, and so anyway, we just looked, it, it looked kind of stupid, but there was this 3,500 foot wall right above us where we did our base camp and we found a line up there and we worked on that. I won't go into details on that because it was, um, that was pretty well covered in the sharp end Mm -hmm. podcast, but basically I took a, I was all the way at the top. We were cruising. Things were looking good. Weather was perfect. I got beamed on went in the head with something took a 200 foot footer shattered well i hit danini on the way down and put a cramp on print in his thigh and um and shattered my legs and um i got strand i was stranded for two days while while jim uh, went down to organize a how, how high rescue. up were you we were probably 2500 feet okay up so yeah. we, we were way up, right? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and and it was steep. Like right. this is like Ruth Gorge kind of stuff. Uh-huh. And um, we tried to self rescue and just you know adhesive tape and ice axes make really shitty splints. Right. And and um, it, I was bleeding and and uh, it hurt. And um, okay, we have to talk about this. Moment. I know you <laughs> okay, talked about, but sir. we uh, this is a different podcast. Love Ashley, but we're on it. We're on the normal okay. So we I have to talk to you a little bit of detail. So. So, uh, like a factor two, did, was there gear between you? No, and no, the- no. Yeah. There, so, um, uh, we were at the so the last six hundred feet, seven hundred feet of this line with this beautiful ice ribbon and a corner at the top of a huge kind of I'll call it an arena. It wasn't an alcove because, um, but it was this this kind of this secret little space, big space up there, and. Um, it, we, we were three pitches up and at the literally at the top of the ice ribbon um, at where the summit snowfields start. And um, it was a stair step thing. There was about 100 feet of vertical ice above, from the belay. And I'd placed um, three screws in. The top one was maybe 10 feet from the top of the vertical pillar. Um, and then it kind of kicked back to a 60 degree-ish kind of snow slope and then there was a 15 foot kicker at the top and um that ice was all rotten and sun rotted mm-hmm. and it wasn't very thick but there was rock around it and you know i thought maybe i could get some gear in. i had some pins and stuff and so i put a little stubby screw in at the base of that little pillar um and it was it was bad and you know i knew it was bad and i looked all over for some good rock it was kind of classic crappy elastic shattered rock and stuff and i said well whatever this doesn't look very hard and so i was up kind of on the left side of this pillow pillar my left kind of dry tooling and you know on the rock on the left side kicking my feet into this kind of 
frothy, crappy ice and uh, at the top. And uh, literally, my tools were over the top of this pillar into the snow, summit snowfields. And I'm pretty sure I got hit by something. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't remember. They say I have sure. survivor's amnesia, but I remember yelling down at Danini that I um, things were, you know, it's a good thing we're getting up above because things were starting to loosen and melt out. And sure. Stuff. And uh, that's the last thing I, I remember until I woke up, you know, hanging down below him. So right. I ended up maybe 60 feet below him um, and the rope had gotten uh, core shot. Well, more than that, but cut literally, there were just three or four strands of rope and it was right about in the middle. So that's why I think I took about a 200 footer. Right. So. Wow. And uh, shattered both legs. Yep. So open tib fib on the left side and blading right, right right foot was um, mm. just totally crushed talus bone. I didn't know what was going on at the time. You know, right. But I knew it's all that, in your boots. Yeah, and stuff. it was all in my boots, gaiters and all that stuff. So he bails. Well, no, he didn't bail. He, <laughs> we, we. I mean, not, you know, not right. bails. Is well, like, so the I'm problem not, is this, this, right. this dude wrote a book about it right. and, and the way he spun it, you know, you always got to have an antagonist. Oh. And they blamed all the shit on Danini. I'd be so dead without him. Right. <laughs> and, and. Uh, no, I didn't mean that in any no, other no. way. Then he went down. Right. He, yeah. he did. And there yeah. was a lot of discussion about that. Right. So we, we self-rescued down, to, down that ice ribbon. So, you know. 400 feet maybe and at the top of a steep snow field he um we just you know i it it just wasn't working right for Mm -hmm. me or for him because he was injured too and uh so he chopped out a ledge on the ice there right at the at the top of the snow field so he got some cams in and he took the the all the climbing gear and he left me all the warm jackets and water and food and stuff like that and he descended um and we had two ropes and we tied them together and there were actually two knots we had to pass because one was the core shot right and uh i lowered him that 400 feet and um when it came time to like let the rope go that was that was a pretty tough moment, right? Sure. And, and You're just you like think, goodbye world, right? Yeah, and and connection. I was I that's where I was, man. I was not going to let go and you know, um, you know, slide down the gully, right? right? Go gently into that <laughs> yeah, good night. Yeah, that would have been you know. And I thought a lot about that, mm-hmm. and um, you know, the rope is you know so symbolic of our partnership and stuff, and actually, when cause he was out of sight at the end of those four hundred feet, and um, uh. Yeah, that was that was a tough moment. Mm-hmm. You know, so what a, what ensued? They they who who came? So he who came so and got he um, Paul Roderick at, at Talkeeta right. Air Taxi was our pilot, and he was a good friend of Danini's and stuff. And he'd been he checking on us every couple of days. And early that morning, you know, seven o'clock or something, he had done a flyby and seen us just cruising right. And it was perfect weather and everything like that. So we didn't expect to see him for a few days. Um, and, and, uh, so Danini gets down all the way down and, and he's wounded, right? He can barely, he had to crawl, um, when he got down to the mm-hmm. level glacier, you know, he had to literally had to claw, crawl because he couldn't walk because of that Charlie horse on his leg and the puncture wounds and stuff. And he went into the tent and like 10 minutes later, here's the plane set up to land. Right. And, and I hear the same thing. And, and, um, uh, like there's a, mo- there's no mistaking the sound of an airplane when it right. sort of changes the mixture and all that. And like, holy shit, what the hell? What did uh, Paul Roderick had gotten this creepy feeling that, you know, huh. he needed to, he'd get, his spidey sense had gone out off. And um, he came over to check. It was out of the way, right? And and it was like 730 at night. And um, 
he had, he said, I, I'm just going to go check on those guys once again. Sure enough, he finds Danini who's waving his suit around and, you know, um, gets him off. And so they got the got everybody alerted and they're ready to go. And the next morning they did a flyby to check to see if I was still alive. Mm-hmm. And then they got it started getting people out on the glacier. And they climb up to you? Um, no, no, they, they, so the first, this, uh, this is, um, was actually a pretty amazing rescue. So there were three groups that were doing the pair jumpers, right? The two, the two twelfth airborne or something. These are the guys who jump out helicopters into the hurricane storms. Sure. Um, the Denali rescue team, we weren't in the park, but they were sort of leading the rescue and we used their personnel. And there was the Alaska Mountain Rescue, which was the volunteer group out of Talkeaton and Anchorage. And um, the first day that everybody's in, so I already spent one night up there. The first day that everybody's in, they, they were there with the, with the llama checking, you know, doing power checks to see whether they could get in, getting close to me. It was super steep. Right. right. So Denali is not very steep. Right. So they have these pro- protocols that they can only use a 50 foot line below the short hall and they can they have to have a 100 feet of rotor clearance because right. it's windy and bumpy up there. And that all makes sense. But when you're in a vertical terrain, that doesn't work. Sure. And the pilot was like, no, we can't do this. And so he was flying around above me on the summit snow flo- uh, slopes, um, you know, to see if he could land people there to um you know come down, come down yeah. to yeah. me and the you know, big slab kicked off or a cornice broke or something up there and it came down and just bombed me and fortunately it was steep enough that it kind of most, mostly went over my head but there were a bunch of people you were like down. god what else right, what else? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know it was I'm, i was just leaning over i'm just getting pounded by the snows it's going by and, and it was it was actually kind of gentle mm. massage kind of thing but i you know didn't know if there was a big rock in there or something I got lucky. Um, but anyway, um, that pilot was at the end of his allowable hours for the week. And so they brought in the the, um, the relief pilot and um, who had never flown a mountain rescue before. This guy was a fire department mm-hmm. pilot out of L.A. And he'd gone up to train with a guy. But this guy was the ninja pilot for llamas, which is that high altitude helicopter. Right. And, um, he'd, you know, spent his whole life evacuating people off of burning buildings in LA. And so it was work, uh, used to using really long lines. And so he, um, he, he tie, he asked if he could go 200 or 250 feet of rope and that's not allowable according to protocol. And, and the rescue ranger, Daryl Miller, um, went to his supervisor and said, could we do this? His supervisor said no. And, um, so he went over his head to the regional director who was Ralph Tingey, who I don't know whether you know, he's, mm-hmm. he's in URA now is one of the old dudes who okay. still climbs super badass. Um, he said, yeah, do it. And so they put 200 feet, 200 or 250 feet of rope onto the, onto the llama, tied on a, a rescuer and, uh, flew up and picked me off. And as we're flying down, um, you know, it's the guy's got the helicopter helmet, you know, kind of the bubble thing with a little screw on mm-hmm. the top. And I'm like, dude, thanks. You rescued me. And, and, uh, he goes, you don't know who this is. And I said, no. And he unscrews it and puts his visor up and it's my friend, Billy shot, who you might remember from CSU because that's when he was there. Oh, right on. So he was, and Daryl Daryl Miller was running the outdoor program. So the guys, those guys came up and got me. Nice. Yeah, it was really cool. Nice. So anyway, 
But yeah, so that's the that's it in a nutshell. That's the nutshell, right? Well, that's what we're, we're, we're we've got room for here. So, um, but you ended up losing a leg. Yes, I mean you're sitting here in right. front of me with a right. prosthetic, right. and and again, that was I mean that's going to change anybody's life. Yeah. So uh, you know, I I don't know. Again, I'm I'm the glass half full guy. Okay. And um, while I had 48 hours up there on the ledge, while I was you know. While they were trying to get that res- rescue organized and get everything done safely, so they didn't kill anybody else, and um, I, you know, I'm really lucky because I know Hugh Hare and I know Mike Crenshaw, people who are very, very active amputees, and I knew that um, you know, life without feet would would be okay. I, I, I just, you know, I, I'd seen it in real life, and and you watch Hugh Hare climb, and you know, that guy's totally cheating. Right. Right. <laughs> and, You're like, I get to cheat now. Yeah. Right. And um, so, you know, it was weird. I wasn't too worried about it. And, you know, then I'd sort of sink down into it and think, well, you know, what happens if I lose my arms too? And then I thought, well, you know, I'll just be that kind of the sci fi brain in the jar, right? And rule right. the world. But, okay. <laughs> you know, and that's funny and everything. But I also accepted while I was up there that, you know, maybe my life was going to be more in the cerebral end of the world than uh than in the physical how many how many uh kids do you have or did you have at this point i had i had two okay and that i know right (laughs) good answer but uh but yes i mean you're a family man (laughs) yeah you know providing uh you know whatever backing to your family financially you know was that on your mind in terms of like well how how am i going to go forward with you know, raising this family or it was all, and, and what was on, you know, like your wife's mind and, and stuff like this as, as you went through this. Chris, I, I can't even imagine how hard this was for Karen. Right. Um, I'd been, obviously climbing was a huge part of my life and I'd been on expeditions around the world and guiding and things like that. And, um, we, we hadn't talked too directly about what happened, but we all, we knew that maybe, something like this could happen sure maybe that's the you know that's the the blinders we put on to yeah it's kind allow. of a detente that happens i think in yeah. relationships yeah. like yeah. that yeah i mean you 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 you've seen it and mm-hmm. we you know you just talked with alex's mom right, right. and we we so, somehow you wrap your brain around that and maybe it's uh, you know pre-denial or something um I was busy up there. I didn't have a lot of th- time to think, uh, you know, of of uh, of that sort sure. of thing. And I'm I'm not a woulda, shoulda, coulda kind of guy. I think, okay, right. I'm like, how am I going to survive? What am I? You know, I, I decided I was going to live. That was a very conscious process. Um, and I I made a plan to to survive as long as I could, and I and I sort of worked on that plan. Mm-hmm. So, well, eventually. You know, you, I mean, you ampu- the amputation came later, but right. what, it was yeah. in was the writing on the wall, or was this like Craig's where they were trying to keep it? So, um, when I got into the ER in Anchorage, mm-hmm. right, and again, by the way, my survival work, my my core temperature was like ninety seven and a half degrees when I got down to the first aid tent after forty eight hours of right. you know sub zero nights and twenty degree days, um, but just my feet were frozen. And so I get into the ER and, and you know how ER docs are and orthopedic surgeons in particular, they, you know, he looked at my feet and says, dude, you're going to lose both your feet. And I said, I know. And I, I, 
you know, I ha- I'd had 48 hours to process this. Right. And in a way, um, I think that really made, has made my life easier um, because I was able to think that. I wasn't blindsided by trauma. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wasn't so um, uh, so injured that I um, wasn't able to process this intellectually. And so, um, and then having the vision of those guys like you here and Mike Crenshaw, um, who are empty, very, very active athletic amputees. I just knew that, you know, my life wasn't over. Right. Right. I, I think it was, it was going to be okay. And, you know, the first thing I did was start when I went after my amputation was, well, I climbed a little bit before my amputation, my, my legs were all fucked up, but I, I did, uh, the first, first thing I did after my amputation was, um, actually I did some horrible chossy thing in American fork five ten and uh-huh. shoes that were, they weren't my size. It was a pair of Nemethos, which were horrible because my feet were so withered from the frostbite and it was painful, but you know, I climbed and then came back to El Dorado and got, got a top rope on the first pitch of, um, uh, works up and then went out to Utah and did, uh, climbed ancient. I approached on crutches and did ancient arts. Uh-huh. And, uh, so then that was with both feet. Okay. And then after the amputation, um, I started designing, right? I mean, I was kind of a gear designer, mm-hmm. right? And, and, uh, so I started working on all these different product prototypes of climbing feet and stuff, talked with Hugh Hare quite a bit. And I wanted to go a little bit different direction than what he, than what worked for him. Um, and so I did a bunch of different prototypes, different shapes out of different materials and things like that. And, um, you know, started climbing quite a bit after, and, you know, I'd go out to the, to the, to the crag with this pack full of feet and right. I'd practice with different sizes and things like that. Right. Great. This got this great photo of a, I made one that's a wedge, almost like a vertical, like a splitting ball almost, but it was covered with sticky rubber. Right. I thought I was going to be able to send fat, fat, fat cat. Super easy. And I have this great picture of me with my wedge in there. But what you can't quite see is my left foot is still on the ledge. Right. And that was as far as I got. <laughs> just, <laughs> it just didn't work. This is a concept didn't, didn't sort of. <laughs> it did, didn't work. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, you know, I, I ended up working with a guy who um, manufactured. A, we, we worked on a urethane carbon fiber thing, worked with Evolve to make a shoe to go on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it became a thing and a product. Right. Um, you know, that one was developed um, with the, uh, you know, for the medical community. And if you know anything about medical billing, this thing that costs about 200 bucks to manufacture ends up costing 1500 bucks to the climber right. at the end. And then a couple of years ago, Evolve, um, Decided they wanted to kind of make a less expensive version of it, and they, uh, we took my concept and the shape I had, um, and made it in a much less expensive way. It wasn't a urethane carbon fiber thing; it was just a piece of polyethylene plastic. Uh-huh. And now you can buy that. You know, it's two hundred fifty bucks instead of fifteen hundred, and it doesn't quite as work as well. But for most people, it's you know, it's more important to climb than it is to climb. Right the highest level right so and if they're, they, they're, so they're still both out yeah. there both yeah. feet are there you could make the move then yeah you know and, that was an investment that you right desperate right. And, for and worked with uh craig yeah. a little bit on the you know in the final touches on that whole thing that's so, awesome yeah it's really fun yeah was, i mean it's like uh you know i talked to hugh on here as well um and he has a much different disposition than you do as you as you i'm certain are aware <laughs> yeah. um but but nevertheless he, he 
he was sort of, I mean, uh, on the same program of like, well, this is done. I'm going to move forward and I'm yeah. going to, I'm going to, you know, create my existence right. just like I did before when yeah. I had two feet. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah, I think that's part of it. You know, the people who study happy, happiness have this, mm-hmm. these concepts of uh, synthetic and acquired happiness and, you know, acquired happiness is when you go to Costco and you get, you know, you got 75 different flat screens to, to choose from. And you, you know, you fight, you come home and you look at them and you put it in your wall. And after the, a day you look at it and you go, shit, we should have gotten the 70 inch. Right. You know, so acquired happiness is ephemeral right. and, and can always be, um, temporarily solved by further acquisition. Synthetic ha- happy is, happiness is what you create. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I, I decided, Hugh decided, Craig decided that fuck it, feet are overrated. Let's just, let's figure out a make a way to, to make it better. Right. Right. And, and, um, and you create that happy, you synthesize that happiness. Um, and that becomes permanent. Right. Right. Cause we made it ourselves. Right. So that's good advice. Yeah, I, I mean, think that's really good. Advice. <laughs> I, I think you don't have I, to lose your leg to to like use that advice. B- bingo. Right. And, and and I think I spend a lot of time talking to people about happiness and how to move forward. And and um, you know, again, I just listened to Arno's podcast the other day. He talks a lot about this. You know, make your decisions, commit to them, um, and go based on on uh, you know anal- analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you, 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 you can decide to be happy or not. Right. We used to tell our kid Mason, when he'd start to get into a funk, you know, we'd, we'd say, dude, you're, you're digging that hole, you know, and that's a big dark hole and you're don't jump into that hole and you can decide not to jump in and, and you can decide to stop digging. And so I, we spend a lot of time, I spend a lot of time working with people. I'm a peer counselor for amputees mm-hmm. and and potential amputees, and so they call me the Limb Reaper. Um, <laughs> and and uh, I think we just got our title for the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, explain I, I think, that. Like, well, so yeah. so uh, yeah, I'm a peer counselor, and I went through a bunch of training, you know, to how to how to work with people who have either just had some trauma or facing an amputation and you know they hook you up with people who are sort of like-minded so they don't put me with a 75 year old diabetic who's about mm-hmm. to lose a foot but they you know car crash people and right. stuff um, right now i'm working with a girl in boulder who um uh she had some sort of injury i don't even know what it was from four years ago she's been in pain for four years and finally i ran into her at the shop and and uh she's like we need to talk and we just sat down and talked and and figured it out and she was a client she was a 512 climber on the kids team and finally she's just to get rid of it and i introduced her to her you to her to hugh Hare and jim ewing who just had mm-hmm. that you know that crazy new um operation so that they're gonna um make her limb ready to accept um microprocessors so that it can talk with a powered right. computerized foot Right. And so she's psyched. She actually, tomorrow, she leaves for Boston tomorrow and she's getting having her op- amputation in a few days. Wow. Yeah. Heavy. So, yeah. So she'll be one of my successes at limb reap, reaping limbs. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, you know, every, every couple of months I get a call from somebody mm-hmm. and sometimes it's an acquaintance. Sometimes it's just a random thing like it was at Neptune's the other day or last, a uh, few months ago. Um, and, and I work with people. 
and help them go through the process. So let me ask you about uh, Paradox Sports. Yeah. It, what, is that, was that your thing? What was the Well, there, there were three genesis. of us. So okay. it, it started with Timmy and DJ. So DJ okay. was blown Timmy up. Timmy O'Neill. Yeah. Um, it started with Timmy and G- DJ. It started with DJ. He was, he'd just gotten out at DJ. 18. DJ Skelton. Okay. Um, he was blown up in the second battle of Fallujah, just lost, you know, all kinds of stuff. He was, he was, he was fucked up. Um, but he spent 18 months there and towards the end of it, um, some dude who lost both his legs come up to him and says, I want you to take me climbing. And, and DJ's like, you know, I can barely climb myself anymore. Right, you right, want me right. to take you to climbing? And it, so he called Timmy out of the blue. He just heard about Timmy because Timmy had done work with his brother, Sean, you know, to climb El Cap and Half Dome. And so those guys did a, an event in the gym there in Alexandria and um, with military vets. And that night, it was sitting around whiskey and stuff like that, they decided to form Paradox Sports. And it was a whole crew of people in the D.C. area. Um, very shortly after that, I met DJ at the rendezvous in Fayetteville, the new river gorge. And, um, we kind of started to move it together with that. So DJ had some friends who were kind of, um, you know, they were, Oh, we'll be the board of directors. And, um, you know, Timmy was like, yeah, let's do it. (laughs) And, uh, um, I kind of ended up, of course he was (laughs) right. (laughs) And, And, um, you know, thank God for Timmy. Right? Yeah, yeah, totally. the, the guy, the guy is the catalyst <laughs> right. for lots of good things. Um, and uh, I ended up sort of running the organization. Right? It was I was I was sort of done with Trango. I was still there, but I, you know, emotionally, I'd taken it as far as I could take it, um, and I was spending more of my time doing Paradox Sports stuff. Right. And, uh, so I became the executive director and one of the board members, which by the way is a no, no, don't do that. If you're running a pair, uh, nonprofit, um, and I kind of built it for five years. Right. right? And what was right. just in a nutshell, the mission? So the, it was really, the idea was to try to help people with disabilities lead normal lives through human t- powered outdoor sports. Okay. Right. We, there's all kinds of you know, issues that people with disabilities have. You know, let's look at VJ, a friend of ours who was hurt in a rappelling accident in a wheelchair. He's like Quinn. Um, you know, look at the hurdles you have besides just curbs and shit like that. If you want to go skiing, right, you need a $7,000 sit ski, right? right? And then you need a vehicle you can put it in. It does not go on the rack on your Subaru, right? right? And and then you need somebody as an attendant with right. you. you you need our, to be trained to use it b- by bingo, an expert. Yeah, yeah. bingo. And, and um, our goal was to try to help people get normal in, right. in a good way. Right. Right. And and uh, we sort of developed the use of we, – we began to use the word normal as a descriptive for somebody in the pejorative. Right. You know, sorry, Chris, you can't come with us. You're just a normal. <laughs> right. <laughs> you don't know me that well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you're, you'll be their next volunteer. Right, right, right. But that was one of the brilliant things about the the culture that evolved around Paradox Sports activities is, mm-hmm. is that um, you know it was Maureen back. She's the the one arm. You need to put her on the co- a normal case. Of course, probably. yeah. Um, she was a congenital, born without mm-hmm. a left hand, mm-hmm. and she just sent a five twelve uh, sport route. Nice on lead without missing a hand yeah right Put us in <laughs> think, touch. Think, think about that yeah well um 
you know, her her impression, she came out to one of the very first, um, it was actually a pre-Paradox event, because I used to just, on a weekend, I'd bring people out to Uray and we'd go ice climbing. Um, and w- the thing that she she grew up, you know, with people trying to stuff her into adaptive programming and things mm-hmm. like that. She hated it. And, and when she came to us, she liked the drinking and she liked the <laughs> fact that there was no, there was no pity. Yeah. You know, and, and we just, you know, missing a leg, we'll figure it out. Missing an eye. Sure. We can deal with that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we, f- we, we figured that stuff, stuff out and move forward with it. Right and, on. Um, I think we've found a pretty f- nice little niche, you know, to, to help people get out and kind of be normal. Right. And, and uh, despite our, our uh, the use of it in the pejorative sense, ultimately the goal is we wanted people to be able to get out and do the things they want to do with the friends they want to do it with when they want to do it. Right. Right. Rather than to have to, oh, let's see, I want to go up in three weeks and do a day of skiing at Winter Park. Right. That's not normal. Right. Normal is, hey, Chris, you want to go skiing tomorrow? Right. Right. And and that means you got to know how to help. You got to have the rig, you know, the whole bit. So right. that was our goal. Um, since I left Paradox Sports, they've focused their mission a little bit. I was really all about all kinds of human powered outdoor sports. And I was helping people with biking. And, you know, we took people into the Alaskan bush and went fly fishing for a week in a wilderness river and wheelchairs and stuff. Um, but they, I think they were smart. They said, you know what, we're a climbing organization and they've tightened that up. A sure. Little bit. So right. Other than that, the attitudes are pretty similar. Awesome. Yeah. I think it's one of these organizations that's become, I mean, so well known within the climbing world. You can't really bring up paradox sports without folks knowing no, we, about we, it we you know it's i mean it's, and that's partially thanks to timmy for yeah sure. right no <laughs> we couldn't have done it without timmy i mean and, you know. and he, if he hasn't been on the norvo cast well, we talk about it endlessly so, but I'm sure it did such a moving target so um, i don't have enough memory on my uh, on my computer <laughs> right. so i got to get a bigger, bigger right. computer first right. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah um we've we've changed the world a little right. bit and, i know and um i am there's a only a few things I'm really proud of, you know, that I look back and said, you know, what do I want on my headstone? And one of them is we changed the world for people with disabilities. That's awesome. You know. So uh, what what's happening now? You, you you're, you're uh, making we're, a move from Boulder. Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we've um, our our kids have bailed. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and actually, my younger son today is driving up to Montana. He got married a week ago, and he and his wife are driving to Montana. They don't know exactly where they're going to go or what they're going to do, but um, they're going to go to knock on doors, talk to Dana Gleason and John Connolly and the guys at Sims, and try to find some work and a place to live. My older son Mason is a Patagonia rep, so mm-hmm. he's solid. You know, he's. He'll he'll be our pension when we get old, <laughs> and uh, so he's here at the trade show. So cool, going to see him have dinner with him tonight. I think right on. Um, what's so, keeping yeah. that? What's keeping that mind going? You talked about, uh, you know, the the cerebral maybe taking over a little bit after your accident. I don't know how to say this without sounding like I'm like too proud or something, but I I really I'm getting better at intellectualizing intellectualizing things. You know, I, I like to think about kind of broad picture things. I've done a little bit of leadership training, mm-hmm. and work with groups and things like that. I've done a little bit of business, business consulting. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the best thing I did for my intellectual mind is I quit Facebook. All right. <laughs> you know, it saves me two hours a day. <laughs> <You're> so- <laughs> 
<laughs> I envy you. I, I I could do it too, almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you'd have to. You, I think in your position, you need it, right? Right. But somehow you need to, you you need to divide it, right? Right. You need. Yeah, to, it's you work. Need to work. I need to yeah. just have right. it as work, right. and on right. the schedule as work. Yeah. 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 And and uh, um, you know, I, I you're still counseling. Yeah, yeah I, you're I still, still the limb yeah, yeah, I'll never stop at that. You'll never stop being <laughs> right, the limb reaper. Right. right. <laughs> and uh, you know, um. I got called to interview for there's a new group that's trying to developing a brand a, a branding agent uh, agency for the mm-hmm. outdoor world. I spent an hour and a half with them right. a few days ago. I've got a phone call tomorrow. I can't even remember what it's about. But, cool. And you know, I've been in the industry forever. And, right. And so people want to pick my brain. Sure. Right. Sure. I, I just I need reputation. a I need a meter that I can just start charging for. Right. That, right. Because every two weeks somebody calls me with a product idea. Something right like on, and I love helping people. Cool, do that. Well, awesome. So, Thank you. We just banged out. I mean, was geez. that a whole hour? Oh, it was Don't way more than an hour, okay. my friend. We're uh, you got a tough editing job. No, no, here. that was fantastic. What <laughs> a joy right. to sit and talk to you finally. Yeah, we like know, orbited each other for years. Totally. Yeah. We just sort of once. A- I know your son better than you. Right. Frankly. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, isn't that the case? Yeah. So. so um, yeah, no, it's been great, and I've really appreciated. Um, I started lis- listening pro- to podcasts in mid February when mm-hmm. the weather shut down because I usually ride my bike, right? And so I've been listening to yeah, them, and uh, uh, you know, it's perfect twenty minute each way to Neptune and back from my house. So cool. Um, I don't, yeah, it's been. Um, you are the man at this. You do a great job at interviewing and chatting with people, and I love that. Cool. Well, thanks for the props. And and again, thanks for the time. All right. And pleasure. I'll see you when I see you. folks thanks for listening and thanks to malcolm for coming on the show it was uh fascinating to talk to somebody who's watched the climbing industry and climbing in general transform over such a long period of time in the united states and here's a here's a side note is that malcolm in his sort of pre-tirement is working at neptune mountaineering in boulder for the time being not too much longer but uh if you go into Neptune Mountaineering and you see Malcolm, he can give you a tour of the of the climbing museum there, including his toe, which is enshrined in a jar. His toe that was amputated during that accident is uh, is there on display. So you can talk to Malcolm about his toe while observing his toe in a jar, which I've never done that, but it sounds like a pretty incredible experience. You should check it out. And to circle back on our conversation at the beginning of the podcast, yeah, check your knots. Check the knot in the end of the rope. He's right. It's a way more common accident than having your tie-in knot come undone. And it's super preventable when you're climbing single-pitch climbs, whether they're sport climbs or drag climbs. And and in particular, drag climbs can get you into serious trouble because oftentimes sport climbs were set up specifically, the anchor is at a point to be lowered off with. Now, depending on whether you have a 60 or 70 or an 80 meter rope can change that but single pitch drag climbs like you find in red rocks like you find in indian creek um, all over the east coast atlantic seaboard those were not necessarily set up specifically to lower off of 
that's where people, I think, get into trouble. I know it happens in Indian Creek all the time because those climbs can be just a little bit too long. Now, luckily, though that accident can and has been fatal, a lot of times it is not because you really just drop the last however many feet when the rope runs out. But the carnage can ensue. Broken backs, broken bones, concussions, severe head injuries, and yeah, you can die as well. So easily preventable. Not in the end of the rope, tie it to your rope bag. And also, when you think about this accident, keep in mind that this is not a belayer fault accident. It is definitely the responsibility of the leader, because you're the one that's going to get dropped, to look down and check that knot, just as much as it's the responsibility of the belayer. And if you didn't do that, as I said earlier, it's almost impossible for the belayer to stop that from happening, no matter how skilled they are unless they happen to look down and notice. So you're the one at the top of the climb. You're the one who has a sense of how long the climb was, and you should be taking care of yourself. So if this has happened to you, or you've been a Belair where it's happened, forgive yourself. It's a joint responsibility to get that knot in the end of the rope. That's just my two cents on the aftermath of something like that. All right, good luck. Check your knots. Come far, pilgrim. Feels like far. Were it worth the trouble? Huh? What trouble? 